Hi, I'm Paul Miller, and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices, and people impacting the new digital worlds where we work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking, and boutique consulting services. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. As we close out the first season of Digital Workplace Impact, we wanted to use this episode to place some of the highlights of season one. I had such fantastic conversations in season one on topics which ranged from working for a robotic boss to what do we mean by this whole topic of working out loud got into fantastic conversations around the digital transformation of two of the world's oldest banks, Barclays and Wells Fargo, and it really was a a terrific first season. In this first uh, set of highlights, um, we get into the topic of bringing your whole self to work. What does it mean to come to work without having to pretend to be somebody else. And my guests were Jesse Hunt, who is the digital learning leader at Adobe, and Ephraim Julius Freed, who at the time of recording was internal communications manager at Riot Games. I think there's a place for everyone, but my belief is there is an art to nonconformity. <laughs> and and maybe Ephraim's like a little bit like me is that we seek out places that don't feel like they're conforming so much. So that could be more speak to who we are as individuals. I know I, I worked as a flight attendant. I worked in a job that I had, I was completely governed by rules and I wore a uniform every day and I was meant to conform and, and be completely calibrated across the entire fleet with everybody else like me. But I never felt like I couldn't be myself. I never felt like I couldn't you know, tell my own stories and have my own energy and interact with people in my own way. I just had to do it in the confines of what the the corporate brand was at the time. There's just different shades of being an individual. You know, I'm someone who would live in my bathing suit on the beach every day if I could. I I live for that environment, but I come to the office. I'm wearing high heels and pants today and, you know, I curled my hair and, you know, that's just something that it still feels okay. And so I think there's just all these different shades of individuality and what we're willing to conform to for social norms and what we're not. And you just have to know those non-compromisables for yourself. And that just takes a great deal of curiosity and learning inward and so that you can bring that to the table. And I'm just wondering the relationship between what we're talking about and where technology, how, how technology has enabled some of this deeper experience of, of ourselves in work to come about. I'd be just interested to know, maybe Ephraim, what you feel in terms of the role that technology is playing or played to enable this shift to the whole person in work. You know, when I first got into the world of intranets, it was because it was kind of the dawn of, of enterprise social software. And I saw how that interactivity and putting people first rather than content necessarily offered the opportunity to build community. 
and especially across offices with colleagues that you might be able to connect with powerfully if only you had the chance. And so I think that one of the things that technology does, especially when it's social, when it's putting people first, is it creates many more opportunities for connection and community beyond the, you know, 20 people that sit really close to you or that you might see when you go to the bathroom or the cafeteria or whatnot. I I think that's one piece of it. I think also, you know, Paul, there are some people who are really active on social media that are actually introverts, right? If you get them in the room, they're going to be much more quiet. And in some ways, technology allows people to connect, even if they wouldn't be as comfortable doing it in person. And some people, as you, I'm sure you've seen online, use online places to let more of themselves out than they feel comfortable doing in person. And so I think those are some examples of how technology lets people be themselves more. It doesn't guarantee it, but it does provide that opportunity. Yeah, and I'm also wondering about the you know, impact that this has on recruitment and retention. Because obviously, there, you know, there's a, I don't like the words war for talent, but, you know, there's a, there's a desire to get the best people. And if you ask particularly companies in the tech sector, what's the biggest problem that they face? It's finding good people. And it would, uh, to what extent does this really help in a, you know, competitive environment for for good people i think that the more collaborative and the more open we are and and i guess em- embracing of individuality the less attrition there is and i think it does go back down to this idea you know everybody i think the secret sauce is if you really want to fit in you got to have a friend you need to have something important to do and you need to know why you're doing it and that's kind of how work is. And that's kind of how life is. Any organization I've ever been a part of in my life has had those three things and to be successful. And when you kind of lose one, it makes you reevaluate. So if we're ourselves at work and we bring that, if we have bring yourself to work day every single day, to quote you from, (laughs) I think there's, there's something there's a longevity in that mindset. And it's, it's actually such a simple thing, but we get, we, we have a, such a complex world and, and we increasingly make it more complex. But when we strip down and simplify and we get down to the human, and this is what I study, you know, human behavior, how that works in the workplace. I'm constantly thinking we have to get simpler and I'm going to steal this quote. I mean, bring yourself to work day every day is, is really fascinating. And and I think when we're able to do that, attrition and leaving and going somewhere else, there's a time and a place, you know, we like to move on, but it's not like, well, when is that going to be? You know, it's more, let's just be here now. Let's just do this for now and see what myself is like here. And when you lose one of those things, like you don't know what you're doing it for anymore, or you don't have something interesting to do, or you don't have the connection with the people then that's maybe when you make the change. But the more you're yourself, maybe the longer that those things last. So in episode two, the subject was we work together, so why not live together? And my guests on this episode were Peter Faber, who's the founder of a company called Surf Office that create co-working spaces 
that you can actually live and work in. And Phil Many, global social media risk and governance leader at PwC Price Waterhouse Coopers. What has surprised you by seeing people work and, and live like this? I didn't expect that people will come to work 10 hours. And sometimes I have to <laughs> kick, mm-hmm. kick out people from the office because the weather is awesome. Uh, everyone is, I don't know, Friday afternoon and everyone is in the office. <laughs> and I ask them, guys, you are in Lisbon, you are here for five days. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can work <laughs> when you come back. So that was for me the, the biggest surprise that uh, people, people were productive, especially I see employees that's the thing. I expected more freelancers and entrepreneurs right. in serve office. And it evolved that somehow it, it attracts more and more employees. And if you are an employee and you want to, to go to place like serve office and you propose it to your boss and the boss approves that you can go, then you work like crazy to show that you can be productive at such place because you want mm. to repeat it. You want to do it again. What's the role that physical presence plays inside PwC? Well, I think there's, um, there's always a need for physical presence when you're having face-to-face meetings with, with clients. So a, a, a lot of people at PwC spend most of the time out um, meeting their clients face-to-face, either at their offices, our offices, or, or, or elsewhere. And that's uh, clearly the, the, way, the way that it is. But um, when we're not out at clients and we're just doing other work, it's quite common to just work quite flexibly, really. Um, it, work from home, work from wherever's, um, wherever's comfortable in the office. Uh, I think it also depends on the type of work that you're doing, though. So quite often, if I want to have some time maybe to think about a new blog or think about the uh, the strategy for the work that I'm doing, I, I leave the office uh, to have, give myself a different environment, a different thinking environment, maybe go to a coffee shop and sit there. In fact, I was discussing this with a colleague not that long ago, and um, they were saying that uh, all the great, some of the great thinkers of our time, like Einstein, went um, went out to coffee shops, and, and apparently that's one of the reasons that they exist, so that people could go and exchange ideas and talk about what they're what they're up to. Uh, very much in the same way that we, we're hearing about Surf Office. So I think that, that it really de- depends on the situation. Really, there's a, a real kind of focus with reason on productivity and how we work and whether it makes us more productive. But I think one of the interesting things is, you know, whether it makes us more creative. And and there's a level of creativity needed in an awful lot of work. Mm. And so do you think, or to what extent do you think that this flexibility kind of fosters creativity? I think it does. Uh, Just thinking back to when I was writing my book, I mean, I didn't write that much at home, actually, um, because... I have, a, I have a young daughter, and, and she would just keep coming in all the time, wanting wanting cuddle. Um, so I, I was out and about most of the time, um, either in the office or in coffee shops or even in a pub, writing writing my book, uh, and then socialising with with uh, colleagues to debate issues. I find that 
uh, good when you're out uh, out of the working environment where there's more people around and you can be a bit more sociable. I think that a lot of good ideas come about from from those sorts of things. Uh, and just thinking again, uh, I think a lot of this does depend on the type of work that you're doing. So. At PwC, we have a a digital environment uh, in one of our offices, which uh, is very much open plan, lots of sofas around, uh, boards, big sort of um, uh, prototyping areas, areas where our people can come in, not in their suits and whatever is comfortable. And uh, when thinking about digital, they they come together even with, with our clients to help them think about new ideas for technology and apps and things. And I think that's a very deliberate move. Uh, to have a different environment to to allow that. I'm not saying it's right for everything, of course, but I, I think you need an option of a few different spaces depending on what it is that you're you're trying to trying to do. Sometimes, if you're writing a big report, you may just want to go away and have some quiet time on your own to to write. But sometimes, if you if you if you want to bounce ideas around. Uh, and maybe a, a more open environment might might be better. I think a lot of this depends on the situation, what it is that you're actually trying to do. Maybe I have one idea that the remote work is not for it's not for everyone. Some people say that it's for maybe ten percent of the employees or best people because you really need the routine and discipline and all these things to work remotely. So. For many people, if they go, I don't know, to Bali and have to work in some remote office in Bali for the company, let's say, in London, most people will fail with the discipline. I suppose what you're talking about is is a level of kind of self-discipline there, aren't you, Peter? Uh, Self-discipline, but also um, it's not for people who just graduated and started a new job because they don't have they don't have much experience they don't have much work experience in general and remote remote work is quite challenging because it's a lot of about communication how to how to write properly emails and that everyone can understand you because there is no in the office, there is always the solution that your colleague doesn't understand you by email or by chat, so you just stand up and, and go to talk to that person or have a meeting. In remote work, sure. it's, it's a bit complicated. So people who work remotely, they are usually very good, very skilled in communication. So for episode three, there was a little bit of a change attack and shifted from the corporate world into the public and civic world. Can governments cope with digital citizens? Interesting question, this one. And my guests were fantastic. Tom Cheesewright, applied futurist at Book of the Future, uh, very active in, active in the public and civic sphere himself. And Sarah Gold, designer and director of If Technology for Good. Why is it you're so attached or what is it about the future that means you just completely love thinking about the future? Yeah, um... I don't know. I don't know whether it was my mum going to see Star Wars when I was in the womb or um, 
the the you know, early exposure to to science fiction, which was you know the sort of the dominant genre when I was young. But I've always been obsessed with. I guess it's really the appliance of science. It, it's about what we can be as as a race, what we can be as human beings, by leveraging what what no other species on this planet has, which is this ability to uh, to use our brain power and the elements around us to to build tools that improve us and improve our lot in life. And so, yeah, you know, I don't think I would have put it quite so sophisticatedly back then when I was reading the original Usborne book of the future after which my business is named. Me back then it was about robots and lasers and things that I found fascinating. Um, but now, you know, it's, there's a, there's a level of political engagement in it. There's a level of uh, desire, I guess, for us to be what we can be. And in a lot of ways, science seems the route to that possibility for me. I think if you look at um, what's happening with libraries or what could happen with libraries, that they are a key kind of public institution involved in um, a little bit of the sharing economy. But I completely agree with you, Tom, in terms of the term. Um, and <laughs> also the sharing economy is actually um, a bit of a hoax. But if you look at services um, like the Library of Things, it's just recently opened in West Norwood, which is a, a service that provides um, things like um, sewing machines or um, drills uh, to the community you can borrow them for a certain time bring them back hence their name the library of things um, there are some new emerging kind of local services i think that do um, take into account this kind of underused resource idea that tom brought up earlier that um, i wish we'd i hope we'll see more of um, i think they're really good what's interesting from a point of view of particularly of digital is that government can operate without necessarily the need for national borders and that's something that I find really fascinating um and how um this idea as well of kind of citizenship as um perhaps also like the state as a service which maybe has kind of negative connotations but it's also something I've been thinking about too so in episode four the subject was, is it really noisy working out loud? We've all heard about working out loud, and I've even started doing a lot more working out loud, partly because I was inspired by the guests on this episode, Kelly O'Connor, who at that the time of recording was service manager for Digital Workplace at Bank of New York Mellon, BNY Mellon, and Isabel de Klerk, trend catcher, fire starter, and sparkle architect, as Isabel calls herself at Klua Training. I say it's basically about two things. It's about um, connecting with people online. That's the first element. And the second element is it's about showing your work. And you know, Paul, when I started implementing Working Out Loud in my organization like nine months ago, I explained Working Out Loud to my colleagues. And you have to know that um, there was a lot of resistance against working out loud and they saw it as a threat. And at first I was um, surprised by this resistance. Um, they were saying things like, you know, social media, Isabel, it's, uh, it's superficial. Um, it's narcissistic crap. I don't have the time, the time to do that. But, and then I was thinking, why does this resistance come from? And I think that the resistance should not 
surprise us because working out loud takes a lot of courage to work out loud. And I think this is really one of the messages I would like to give now in your podcast. If you go on social media and um, you listen to what people say about working out loud, of course, those who are on social media, they are already passionate about working out loud and they are always positive about it. But it's not that easy, in my opinion, um, to implement it in your organization. And I think it, the resistance should not uh, surprise us because we ask people to show their work. So it means that they get very vulnerable because you can get positive feedback and you can get less positive feedback on your work. So that's the first thing. Another thing is that I think working out loud is about reflecting upon your work and your added value. So in fact, we ask people to be critical about themselves. So it's natural that they have some kind of resistance. So working out loud is not just a new way of knowledge sharing. It's really about a new way of learning and uh, working. So we really ask people to change their behavior in a fundamental way. So it, it's not that easy. It's not that self-evident. Mm -hmm. And of course, I would like to hear from Kelly whether she had the same experience in, uh, in her job. Yeah. Resistance, resistance of people. Yeah, I think just jumping in, um, when we started talking about working out loud or when I first heard of working out loud, um, and especially at, at the bank, um, it was, oh, well, Kelly's just a new hire. Um, she's been working here for a couple of months straight out of college. She likes social media just like any other millennial. She just wants to blog. And it's taken a lot of effort to, to do exactly what you're saying is to do is to work towards behavioral change. Um, you know, I work at a 232 year old company where processes have been the same for a while and technology advancement has grown in like infinitely, um, over those 232 years, mostly in the last 10 years. Um, and how are people keeping up? And that's really what, um, the group I work for, the digital workplace group we strive to do is to give employees the best solutions and tools um, to be the most productive, to be the most collaborative, because then in turn, if they're working faster, smarter, better, our clients are going to do better. They'll, they're going to better serve our clients. Um, and so when I pitched working out loud, it was seen as, Oh, just blog about your work. Um, because when we had to tailor our message a little bit, you know, we worked, we, I started to pitch that, you know, it's just making your work visible because I just started to blog about my experiences. Um, and then we kind of, I tailored that message to, no, I'm going to make my work visible in a way that it might help others. What am I doing that, you know, someone else uh, at another office or, you know, on the other side of the world might need, you know, what process have I seen that I'm making changes to that they would need? Um, and I think when I started to work in that more, open, connected way. My, you know, going off of John Steppers, uh, who's the work out loud expert, uh, his definition of working out loud, you know, he's, he stri you're striving to build a purposeful network. I think personally, I find that, that, that switching off from technology at times is a, is a, is a healthy thing. I, I, you know, I find that I don't like to do it in a kind of prescriptive way. You know, it's like if I'm walking or dog Hector, I um, will be sometimes I want to listen to things. And sometimes I just want to kind of listen to the, 
you know the air around the birds and and just kind of have that experience outside of it but i what i hadn't thought about was the idea this word detox suggests that the digital is somehow toxic and it and and there's certainly some aspects of the digital world that are toxic but there's some but there's a lot that isn't toxic just kind of like the 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 non digital world i don't think there is a kind of a a magical recipe um, that can be used in every organization. But uh, there are some elements that, that come back, I think, in, in, the other, in the organizations that I know that have been promoting working out loud and, and, and knowledge sharing. And one of these elements is, in fact, that it should be uh, aligned with business objectives. Um, and that um, you should have, of course, the executives uh, buy in. Um, so if it is aligned with business objectives, it um, I think it's it's more successful. Um, if it's just um, implemented, for example, Jammer or Jive as a kind of a, a tool, uh, then it uh, it just doesn't work. Mm. Um, another thing is that what I did at Clue Training is I really started with a workshop after a two-hour workshop. And I focused on not the advantages for the organization, but I focused on the advantages of the individual of, uh, you know, having your network growing as a professional, uh, being more efficient, um, etc. And what is also important is that I really gave them the time to exercise uh, this new kind of what I call a language, because that's what also people tell me, being present on social media it requires a new kind of language and people of my age, they are just, they, they are not used to it um, because it's a more concise language. And I really gave them some exercises uh, to practice that. Mm. Another thing that I did is that um, in my Yammer community, I have some ambassadors. So I'm sure that there will be a regular uh, posts. Um, and I think that for each community, you really need, need like a community manager who reacts to um, other people's posts, um, etc. So this yeah. alignment to business objectives, um, giving them a workshop focusing on individual individuals' advantages, giving them help with the tool and with the language. Mm. Um, and then these ambassadors are some critical success factors. Episode five, we had a change of tack. My new boss is a robot. Um, finding great content is a kind of fascinating process. And with this, I heard the story from Dan O'Hara, who at the time of recording was Senior Vice President for Digital Workplace at Avenard. And he was talking about his experiences of working for a robot in the form of Uber. What on earth made you decide to become an Uber driver? I had been, like many consultants, talking about the Uberization of things, how you know we're dealing with a gig economy and all those aspects. And we were doing some research on, would you work for a smart boss? So lots of people responded, yes, no, maybe, you know, depending on what my last boss is. But I actually wanted to get the experience of what would it be like to work for a robo-boss. And the closest and easiest experience I could have was actually signing up for Uber. I had been a passenger in Uber for several years, so I knew the concept of how it worked. And we all talk about it as a passenger, 
but I wanted to have the driver experience of what it is like to be directed, what it is like to have it as a part-time job that I can, you know, I primarily did it on Sundays because I have a full-time job. Um, so how did that fit into my schedule? How was I managed? How was I hired? All of those things were interesting questions to really get into the topic of what would it be like to work for a robo-boss? And quite frankly, I learned a ton in that experience with Uber on the different things I liked and didn't like and, and was very impressed with with the experience. Right. Well, well, we'll certainly get into that. I'm still trying to get my head around. If, if I thought to myself, I want to work out how what it's like to be working for a robo boss, I wouldn't immediately think, well, I'm going to go and work for Uber. I might be thinking, well, I'll probably get a job in a kind of manufacturing area or something place where i sort of expect to see robots what what was kind of going through your head when you somehow saw uber and and this robo boss kind of concept together in talking to the uber drivers i asked a number of questions about well how do you get instructions how do you decide when you're going to work and not work and one of the important things we're seeing in all industries, not just at Uber, is this concept of career advisors, not managers, mentors. So there's a lot coming into our environments which are really getting into the concept of you manage your own career. You decide when you're going to work, where you're going to work, how you're going to work. You and I have met in several strange locations because that's where we decided our workplace worked the best. And I think that aspects of the person having the decision, but the system still giving them direction, reward, um, all those aspects that you would normally think of a boss doing, um, was a important things that said, this, this is probably pretty close. And quite frankly, Uber made it extremely easy. One of the things I learned is to work for Uber, it takes about six hours to get connected into Uber and get hired and be trained and be able to go out driving, which was an extremely simple solution. Did you feel like you were being managed by a robot? And is there no contact with human beings, or how does that work? First, defining a robot. A robot, in my mind, could be a, a system, artificial intelligence. You know, Uber doesn't show up as a robot in your car, Uber as a driver shows up as your phone giving you instructions on where to go, telling you how to drive there, where to pick up the passenger, and how you're rated. So I spent about two months with this experience, just a couple of weekends, really getting hired by Uber, which was a six-hour process, including training, before I was ready to go. I never talked to a human in the entire time I worked for Uber I never talked to anybody at Uber. I talked to plenty of passengers at Uber, but everything came through either the website when I did my initial sign-up or through my phone when I decided, okay, when's a good time to go? And Uber would send me a text and go, there's a festival downtown this weekend. They'll need a lot more drivers. And Uber would say, there's a surge over in this area. We need more drivers. And all of those things I could see were being generated by the system. I'm sure there's a person behind the scenes that occasionally goes, oh, you know, the, the baseball game's going to be a little bigger this 
week because of you know who they're playing. But the system, I'm sure, is getting smarter on that to go, these are the big events that we had last year. They're probably the big events we'll have this year and need more driver. So I spent the entire experience with Uber without ever talking, emailing, phoning, anybody at Uber. All of my interactions were through the app. A number of us are going to be dealing with taking care of aging parents and work-life balance taking care of aging parents. Um, My boss may not be the best one to assist with how do I do that. So having the ability to get tasks and assignments and ratings and customer satisfaction are things that a system can probably do more and more of those tasks. Having someone to advise you on how to balance your life when dealing with an aging parent situation and having somebody in your boss or chain of command that understands you're dealing with this and that you may need a little extra care, you may need a little extra time for deliverables, you know, you've been a good employee for five years, I'm going to cut you some slack for the next six months because I know you've got some personal issues that may be a priority. So a robo-boss in its initial forms may not have the sensitivity to deal with special situations, but it probably has a better understanding of this is the training you need based on where you are in your career. This is the how you did on customer satisfaction. Uh, a lot of those type of things, it may be the system or the agent or the robo-boss that sees a broad enough set of employees that they can give you better feedback than a boss that's managing four or five or six employees. But there are special situations, I believe, where you need human intervention to go, oh, well, that's that's a situation that I need to better understand your work-life balance or troubles you're having with the job so I can give you recommendations. So I think there's still humans in the system. They be, may not be the ones that are doing as much of the hiring, as much as the task direction, as much of even the rewarding of uh, people. As we get into uh, the halfway point, episode six of series one of season one, we went into the subject of how passionate people create the best digital workplaces. And I chose two people who really represent this um, fact, and that's Linda Tinnett, process developer for digital workplace at Global Brand IKEA, based in Sweden, and Kevin Alp, who when we recorded it, was Director of Creative Solutions and Digital Workplace at Northwestern Mutual. I think it was the fact that working with internal communication, many people did, and there was a view on it, and there's a whole industry around it, but I didn't fall in love with the the traditional content-based internal communication. For me, it was when I started to, I was sort of forced in a way or asked to explain the importance of certain internal communication and why should we have that and how should it work and what was the benefits. And when you started to dig into that behind the content, behind the corporate news, behind all those sort of surface things or message things only, but really look at that the flow of information between people through systems 
that are really making the company go round. And you understand that that is a little bit like the pulse. That was the internal communication that sort of attracted me. And then I felt like if I can be part of supporting that information flow, making sure that those conversations can happen, make sure that all types of communication, no matter what Mm. it is, whether it's checklists or to-do lists or meeting minutes or whatever, all of those are available for the people who need it when they need it, then I can make a difference. So I don't know if it's me or if it's Swedish or if it's also the company I worked in that sort of asked me to really explain why, but that somehow made me think about where do I really contribute? And I felt like making sure that could work in a good way. That's where I could make a difference. Well, you know, Paul, that your question is is so cool because it's really a nature or nurture question, right? Uh, you know, is it something that's innate inside of people or is it something that can be brought out? And uh, I think that I think that we hire and, and try to bring people into this movement at Northwestern Mutual who have the technical skills with the with the uh, assumption that there is passion within everyone if you can find a way to be able to tap into that if you can find a way to be able to f- to find what really gets them excited about it I- i'm just sitting here i am listening to linda and i'm having a personal epiphany uh because <laughs> i know the last 5 years of my career here has been among the among the most engaging among the most rewarding that i've had in a in a fairly long career, and I do think curiosity probably has something to do with it. It's it's a uh, it's looking at how we do work, um, and how it's changed, and how digital workplace has the potential to change that exponentially over the next over the next decade. Um, I I was uh, I'm just I'm going to date myself. I I was still in the in the world where uh, when I went out early in my career and came back to the office, I had a stack of pink slips on my desk, which were message slips on calls that had come in when I left. And you think about how different our world is today from that, um, where, you know, you can stay connected wherever you are. Um, it just, it's that curiosity perhaps is part of what makes my passion and drives my passion. I can definitely feel that the, uh that there's a, there's a drive and there's a need now to really make sure that our coworkers have, you know, the digital workplace experience to be able to meet the customers in a good way. And, and it's, a, you, you know, I've always felt that I've had good support, but I feel now that there's also a, um, a strong uh, need and, and drive and, uh, you know, pressure also uh, to really make sure that we deliver it a good way. So we could really uh, accelerate uh, maybe the, uh, the experience and then the tool set and everything for the coworker over the next couple of years. But of course, needing to do that in a good, sustainable way, making sure that it supports the business and not disrupt the business. So, yeah. Now... This is a fascinating story. I was really delighted to welcome uh, one of the guests on episode seven, and that was Stephen Roberts, who's in charge of strategic transformation at Barclays. Uh, And he came to uh, our home to do the recording. And the topic was digitally transforming two of the world's oldest banks. And my other guest was Christy Punch, who is a product manager at Wells Fargo. Hope you enjoy this one. 
you, you can see the upside of coming in new because um, one of the challenges of being an incumbent is that you, you tend to focus on improving what you already have and often that will mean applying things like Six Sigma and Lean and things like that. You, you might enhance a, pr a process by maybe 10-15%. A, a new uh, team coming in will look at a process without any of that knowledge from before and uh, say, what does the customer want? So say, I don't know, it takes two months to get a secured loan for a company um, of course, you, you don't want it to take two months. You want to be able to give that loan instantly or the next day. And a new company coming in w would just look at it like that and say, what do I have to do to get that the next mm. day, rather than trying to improve what you have at the moment. Sure. You might eventually get there. So that's the upside of someone new. But there's no reason why <laughs> um, an incumbent, or, uh, uh, so an older company can't, like us, can't think in exactly the same way. Mm. Uh, and I think that mind shift to think like a startup is a big, big deal. We did a couple of things that probably led to everything else. So we put free Wi-Fi into our branches uh, oh, four or five years ago now, and. But we did it for some selfish reasons, which was to help download mobile banking with the customers in the banking hall. Within six months, we'd become the largest distributor of Wi-Fi in Europe. And the uh, we started picking up on social media how kids were arranging to meet in our branches. Wow. And that was quite profound because no one wants to go to a branch of a bank. They go there because they have to. And for the first time in our history, we had people wanting to come in our branches. The other thing we did, we made the largest ever corporate purchase of iPads in the world at the time, to the extent we were invited to Apple's quarterly results. So you we did 10,000 iPads. That was to make a statement to staff that we meant business in digital. But Not, yeah. I, I, I'll just finish the... So, but, but the, 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 both of those weren't... In t and what happened with the iPads was completely unexpected. We thought the staff would love having them and celebrate what we'd done. Uh, instead, the staff, a large proportion of staff, didn't use them. And, and when we went and talked to them, they said because they were embarrassed to ask what should they do with them and how should they use them. And that was a profound turning point in our digital transformation. At that point, we realised... Uh, uh, any idiot can, with money can go off and buy iPads and buy Wi-Fi. The profound thing is that digital transformation involves people. Mm. And we realised, how would we ever convince our customer base to become digital if our colleagues weren't confident about digital? Mm. And that began the journey with digital eagles that led to all sorts of other things. So it was a an unintended outcome that we reflected and acted upon. What started happening out of the digital eagles was just magical and wonderful stuff where the, the volunteers or the staff who became digital eagles who volunteered. So just, just for people listening who won't have heard the term digital eagles and, and I, I've become immersed in the term digital eagles and kind of talked about it all over the world. 
Tell, tell us the, the digital eagle story and so, what, what is a digital eagle? So it, it continues from that purchase of the iPads. So we had 10,000 iPads that weren't being used. And one of the uh, things with us puzzling, oh blimey, what have we done here, was it had happened around Christmas. And we'd been talking to each other how interesting it was that uh, our parents, so our kids' grandparents, would adopt technology not from their children who because I get really wound up with my dad when you're trying to explain how to use an iPhone or whatever but my children will spend all the time in the world and have patience with the grandparent Mm. and we were thinking if only we could replicate that within the organization and so we asked for volunteers and we knew it had to be face-to-face not computer-based training which no one likes in the bank. So we asked volunteers, we had 300 volunteers, of which we chose 20. And those 20 became the digital eagles. And then we mapped out so that one of those 20 over a six-month period would visit every one of our 1,600 branches. And we said, just go in and sit with them as though you're the grandchild and, and, and get their own phones out and the iPads we've given them and just help them. And we thought, well, you're bound to meet somebody like yourself in each branch. Ask them if they'd like to be a digital eagle. And so began the journey. Within two months, we'd got 3,000 volunteers. We're now up to about 17,000 in the UK and another 17,000 in Africa. Uh, And they just started doing outreach to the community, helping the community become digitally savvy. Um, not about banking, but about anything. And that led us on uh, on a journey where we thought this is more than just telephone banking or online mm. banking or a new type of banking. This is a profound thing that's happening to society. And we've embraced digital ever since. Christy, just, just tell me, when you're listening to Stephen's Barclays journey, I mean, where's Wells Fargo on this trajectory so far, would you say? Yeah, I think that we are well on our way. I don't know if we're moving at the pace as, as Barclays or, or that we got qu- quite an early start, but the, we have several programs um, across the organization that allow team members to be part of the digital transformation. And what I really like about Digital Eagles and some of the programs at Barclays is it has that um, everyone's welcome at the table to be a part of this kind of evolution. And I feel like at Wells Fargo, we're taking a similar approach. We have a um, innovation team member network that any team member can be a member of, and it provides opportunities for sharing across the organization, things that different groups are doing, um, opportunities to learn about new um, financial technology or fintech. Um, and it also uh, provides team members with the opportunity to be pilot testers or um, be able to use some of the new things that we'll be introducing to our customers. So it allows team members to kind of be the, get the sneak peek and be able to provide input and ideas um, into those new products or, or new services. And so for me, I really like this approach of 
leveraging your team member base to really drive um, the innovation or drive the digital transformation and just saying, you know, everyone's welcome to be a part of this. Everyone's welcome at the table. So it'd be impossible to have a whole season without having some focus on the world of usability. And the title of this episode was Real World Usability in the Modern Digital Workplace. And I had Paul Boag, who is a user experience designer at Boag Works. And he's really been at the forefront of usability for an awful long period. And I also had somebody on the practitioner side, and that's Anil Kumar, a director of IT employee experience at Verizon. be great just to uh, have you explain, Anil, how you see the work you do and the, and the role that you carry out at Verizon. So I, I play a role of uh, employee experience director in Verizon. And if you would have talked with somebody a few years back and asked them, what is employee experience? They would have told you employee experience is confined within the office boundaries. But that is not so true in today's world. We have a very virtual workforce which works pretty much from everywhere, from office, home, or even from the Starbucks. So in that case, we have to draw parallels between the customer journey and the user journey. What does that mean? Now, the employee experience is not confined within the boundaries of office. Instead, it starts from anywhere whenever they want to touch anything about work. Paul, I can hear you um, <laughs> nod, nodding in agreement. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's spot on. I think the, 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 the workplace has changed radically, hasn't it, over the last 20 years. Um, and I think that will become even more so, especially as the new generation of millennials come into the marketplace, uh, into the workplace. You know, they've got very different expectations in terms of, of the relationship with where they work, when they work. Um, they expect a high degree of autonomy in what they're doing. Um, and it's, it's our role as employers to provide an environment that facilitates that. I mean, um, you know, we get into this bizarre situation in many companies where people, people would prefer to use their home device, the personal device to, in order to do work on than they would the work one because the work one's so locked down and is such a bad experience that they prefer to use their own kit. I mean, that, that just strikes me as madness. You know, what value does the company provide, if not that kind of thing? But also just allowing that flexibility, you know, something like the nine to five workday of us all going into work, sitting there for nine to five. You know, that made sense in the industrial revolution when you had low skilled, low paid workers churning out um, stuff and needed constant monitoring. But these days we've got highly specialized, highly skilled individuals that know a lot better than their, their manager how to do their job. 
job um, and they should have the flexibility to work where and when they want. So I think, you know, it's incredibly progressive of uh, Verizon to be able to be thinking in this kind of way. Paul, is, is this, uh, are these examples of user experience or are these uh, examples of something something else, something broader? I'm not quite sure. I've long since given up trying to define the edges of jobs these days um, because they, they do touch on one another uh, quite heavily. I think, uh, yeah, I would describe what I've just heard as, as a user experience, but I'm sure somebody else, you know, equally an architect would be interested in this kind of stuff um, because, simply because you know, it affects how you design and approach buildings. You know, I can um, imagine HR people being interested in this kind of stuff because it affects, you know, um, the way employees operate. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's a user experience issue, but it's not just that, I think. And I think we need to kind of get out that mindset a little bit because i think as we all specialize more and more in our jobs we've got very deep expertise in a particular area so as a result we need to because we we've almost got tunnel vision right because we're specialized in a particular area it means that in in, in, to provide great experiences we we need to be collaborating with lots of other people and talking to lots of other people so i mean you take the examples um that we've just heard i mean something like you know creating sensors that sit underneath the a desk and monitor whether someone's sitting at that desk you know that's going to take a close collaboration between developers um physical hardware producer people i don't even know what to call them um it's going to take user interface designers it's going to take copywriters to provide the the instructions and explanation of how it works it's going to involve you know a management agreeing and signing off budgets there are all these different people all that have to an involvement in in making a decision like that so uh, yeah i've given up saying oh that's a user experience issue it's an everyone issue one of the fun things about hosting the podcast is choosing the content and one of the goals is to try and keep the content varied and episode nine was around really the intersection between the digital and the physical in workplaces. It's called Fusing the Digital and the Physical Workplaces. And I had two really interesting guests, Karen Gill, Vice President for Workplace Strategy at Fidelity Investments, and also Ryan Anderson, who I've known for an awful long time, Director of Commercialization and Business Development at Herman Miller. You can't call Herman Miller a furniture company because there's so much more than that. But I hope you enjoy. Ryan, what, what, why is it that some places kind of come to life like that in, in the modern workplaces and other places have all the things that you still think would work but, but somehow don't? <laughs> That's a good question. There, there's a lot of factors that contribute to those spaces that you get into and you feel like they're authentic and they're well considered. Karen mentioned one of them, which is um, how aligned is the experience within the space with those things that are core to the culture of the organization? I mean, you should really feel when you go into a space that you've immersed yourself in that culture and it should be authentic. And um I appreciate this dialogue we're having because I've, I've noticed over the years that both the um, the facilities and real estate world, as well as 
um, the technology world can sometimes get very caught up in what's fashionable or um, current thinking about doing this or that. You know, in our world, it's been very much around open office. Uh, mm. what, what's the right approach? I think in the technology world, things like, oh, what are the right collaborative solutions? Um, and uh, when you mentioned Christopher Alexander, it brought to my mind um, uh, his book, A Pattern Language, which is really, I think, one of those foundational pieces that, in essence, begins to ask the question, can't patterns of human behavior shape these solutions? Um, mm. In that book, it's really more around urban planning. But a, a good workspace should not suggest that people should be working differently. A good workspace should be observing patterns of human behavior and designing to those patterns in a way that is forward-leaning. And that's true of the technology we use as well. I was showing my mother-in-law around our garden the other day, and, and I was pointing out that in the house that we live in, there's a wisteria that's that's 100 years old. And, and when an extension that um, was built on the house, the extension was built around the wisteria. Now, it might well be that the extension's not as, inverted commas, nice as it could have been. It's still quite nice. But, you know, the point is it was built with a thought to protect this really quite sacred tree. And, and I think if a building has that kind of thinking going into it, I think this, this, this approach that you're both pointing to is, is part of a, a, a much broader sense of what uh, a, a sustaining and enlivening workplace can, can look like. Yeah, I, I totally agree. In fact, you're you're bringing to mind several of the facilities that I get a chance to work in on a daily basis. I mean, and we're talking here about the the you know the concept of the connected work workspace workplace um, on quite a number of levels. But you know, Karen, what's what's your feeling about how to make sure that when organisations are looking at um, refashioning their physical workplaces, that the digital uh, world of work is is properly integrated into that and that these two sort of channels of activity don't sort of journey ahead in in kind of beautiful isolation yeah and it's it's really coming together in the meeting of the minds in the very very beginning um it is meeting of the minds when you're formulating the strategy and you're providing for continual change. But it's also whenever you do a project, pulling the right teammates together to begin any project and have everybody have a voice at the table. So every time you do a LEED certified building, you get everybody that's supposed to be in that project right up front. I, I totally believe that that's the way you have to do it and that the actual planning of the design, you have to incorporate um, technology thinking into it. We've had many visual visualization um, opportunities and workshops where I'm working now and where I've worked in the past where IT is very much a part of it as well as space design. So once again, planning for the future, where do we want to go, where are we today, and helping that journey go forth together. It's, it's not as hard as you think once you break down the silos. If we roll forward 20, 30 years, will people still come to places together physically to do work? And, and how different will those 
um, uh, environments look from the ones that we experience together? It's an almost impossible question to answer, I know. But, Ryan, have a stab at it. (laughs) Well, I'm... I'm convinced that they will. And um, I'm a bit of a history nerd. And um, in some ways, I can't help but think about the ways people worked, uh, certainly before uh, the post-World War II era, but even pre-industrial revolution. Work was pretty contextual with what what you did at home, right? If you were a farmer, you lived in, and worked on the farm. If you were a blacksmith, you probably did so in the context of where you were. But there were always always situations, uh, certain types of work that benefited from people um, being co-located. And today, uh, I occasionally will ask uh, customers or others, um, what would prevent you from simply closing all of your facilities? I mean, the technology is good enough today that you could give everyone a killer laptop and a, a headset and anything else they would need to work remotely, and you could save millions of dollars on your real estate. And um, it's a it's a worthwhile exercise because when people answer that question, and I'll just give you a few examples of some of the things I hear, people talk a little bit about, well, they're concerned about uh, acculturating new employees. They're concerned about hanging on uh, to talent. They're concerned about the synchronous collaborative moments. I mean, collaboration is becoming increasingly asynchronous with the cloud, but they're concerned about those synchronous moments where people really need to get together. And they're concerned about some of the real relational uh, factors um, as, it, as it pertains to, you know, bosses and employees and th- those sort of things. And when you take a look at the reasons they say, well, I don't think we could close our facilities because these things would happen. If you take a look at those things, those should be the foundation for the design brief, why they have a, mm. a building at all. The trouble is organizations just continue to build build spaces as they have in the past, and they haven't gone through that kind of reductive lean exercise to say, well, what really is the point of this? Mm. Um, if I look to two um, different um, edges of, of the status quo, I think we can find some interesting things. One is I, I just spent last week in Silicon Valley. I'm fortunate to spend a lot of time there. I got a chance to get up close and personal with some of the new facilities that are being built by companies like Facebook and Apple and Oracle. And I mean, the, the tech world is heavily investing in space and and better space. And um, they're the very ones that could enable people to work from anywhere. And so clearly, I think the, the best minds within the technology world understand that there's value in the physical space. Episode 10. Wow, what can you say about episode 10? This was fascinating. A shorter episode... A little darker episode, which I hadn't really expected, but it was me in conversation with Brian Solis, peering into the digital darkness and looking for the light. And I think we managed to do that. Uh, Brian is a principal analyst at Altometer um, Group and is really a a fantastic uh, author and person of insight in the field of digital transformation. I don't think that leaders around the world, both in government and business, we'll just say just in, in any industry, 
didn't anticipate the impact of information or misinformation in the lives of everyday people and how social networking in particular created a perfect storm for navel gazing accidental narcissism as i call it mm-hmm. sort of this idea of influence or false influence uh, and and more importantly the rapid network effect of misinformation or the disintermediation of misinformation and so you have a, you have essentially a society that was blindsided by this perfect storm and experts who were so busy focused on perpetuating technology and implementing new technologies in into our professional and personal lives that we didn't see the anthropological or sociological ramifications of of this storm i'm kind of thinking about this in in terms of the subject for today which is you know is there a future for work so works under investigation and, and one of the things that's been running around my head is is whether work is something that's just going to persist through this digital age obviously we're seeing all of the implications of ai and software and the automation of work do you think this is going to enhance work or do you think work itself might morph into something quite different in the future not even sure whether we'd call it work <laughs> i i love I, another difficult question <laughs> from me brian exactly sir i was just thinking all right how do i tell oh my this? god these, what time's the plane these are great <laughs> exactly i'll just ask them to wait these these are great questions and i i have to tell you there's just there's so many factors here we, we also have been the one thing that's very interesting, I'll just take a step back, and it sort of applies to both questions that you've asked thus far, which is this. Innovation outside of our perspective, let's just call it technological advancements, let's call it disruption. We're, we're not even... We're not even done, and I think we're making decisions, and we're looking at uh, responses to all of these things based on an aging infrastructure that we ha- we we've just put off on on fixing. Uh, because I don't know, maybe we were caught in a state of future shock. Maybe we didn't necessarily believe that all of these changes would happen so fast. We've all talked about how World War Three would be one that was started with the cyber attack, and. That was that's decades of conversations around that subject, and here we are surprised that uh, power grids are getting shut down around the world, that that elections are being hacked, that uh, malware is is globally shutting down or crippling businesses around the world. This this is a long time coming, and when it when it when it comes to the future of work, it's the same sort of challenge. We haven't taking a step back to look at our aging infrastructure and to see what needs to be repaired, but also what we don't have infrastructure for to support yet. And on that note, I can't think of anything else that's going to be more disruptive in the future of work than artificial intelligence, machine learning, robots, uh, which are already starting to take and will take more uh, white collar jobs than I think we're ready to admit. So yes, there will be a future of work, but we have a we have a choice here as architects of the future of work to decide what what is going to be replaced and what makes sense at scale for technology and automation. 
uh, and its impact on the human workforce. And then more importantly, how do we take that human workforce and also students at university, for example, uh, and train them for the jobs of the future right now? And this is where, like in the like in society, we're just not having those meaningful conversations or taking meaningful action to basically take control of what that answer is going to be and thus risk that answer being dealt to us. Personally, I, I as an analyst, I, there's a lot of my work that I know is going to be automated and I, I have to deal with that. And I, I, here I am, what I would believe is mid, mid-career, having to reimagine what I want to do when I grow up <laughs> because, <laughs> because, the, because the robots have, uh, have changed my, my course. And I think this is an area that we all need to internalize. What are we going to do about the looming shifts in work? Hmm. Episode 11 uh, strikes me, um, looking at what was in season one, is really rich, varied set of content. Um, This was really about the subject of knowledge management, and particularly whether knowledge management could really help us create a better world. Uh, My guests were Giovanni Piazza, uh, Head of Global Information and Knowledge for KPMG, uh, an individual I've known for many years and have grown to uh, like a great deal, consider him a friend, and Jean-Claude Monet, who at the time of recording was Chief Knowledge Officer for Microsoft Services. And what do you think the key ways are that... that knowledge management can add value to a a major organization, whether it's Microsoft in your case, KPMG in in Giovanni's case, and and any examples that you you have can always uh, help. We actually have a very uh, focused goal on where we want to uh, get results in knowledge management. And probably I can summarize this in three things if I just think of uh, any company or any government or organization. Number one is productivity, and productivity is achieved through operation excellence. If you think of when you reuse a practice that uh, has been proven, uh, you are predictable in the output quality, in the time, therefore the cost. If you're talking customer, in the customer loves things that are predictable, so it's customer satisfaction. Uh, that's how you can improve your margin. Uh, and so on. So productivity is is clearly a key uh, achievement uh, and outcome of applying knowledge management. The second one is innovation. Um, it's interesting that uh, we, we're still fighting the breaking down of the silos to share knowledge across enterprises or companies. And innovation is about reusing ideas or methods from others. It's not innovation that is creation of new ideas. So more you can find ways to harness all the great ideas a company has, more innovation you can bring. And the third one is we live in a world of complex problem. Um, uh, I'll take an example outside of the enterprise, which is uh, like uh, Ebola. If you look at how Ebola was treated, I wish I, I could have done something at the time to say, but there are all these 
you know, pocket of knowledge around the world from people who don't even speak the same language. And how can we harness all this, put this into a common knowledge base, apply machine learning, detect pattern, tr use automated translation services to bring back the knowledge where the people need it. So that's why I got personally involved into a project for Zika, because uh, we need uh, to, to provide uh, knowledge management practices into area like solving complex problems like that. And there's no single person today that has all the knowledge that is required to solve problems. So whether it is in the enterprise or whether it is in, in the world in general. So to go back to your, the title of this podcast, the AKM can save the world. And this is uh, really interesting, isn't it, Giovanni? I mean, um, I mean, I somehow I ended up writing a book in 1997 called Mobilizing the Power of What You Know. And one of the things that people were saying about knowledge management is it's not about the technology, but, but technology does play a hugely important part. And, and do you feel we sort of mis, misunderstand the role that it can perform? And, and, you know, how do you see that? Technology is important. Uh, it becomes too important uh, when it's used as a pretext uh, to to play with things instead of staying focused uh, on uh, on on the main thing, which is uh, as uh, as you heard from both me and Jean Claude, uh, the circulation of intellectual capital and the connection of individuals. That's one of the mistakes uh, that uh, uh, many of us uh, uh, knowledge management practitioners have done in the past. Uh, consider technology being preeminent uh, in the uh, in the knowledge enablement of an organization. It is not. Uh, there are four components, and they are, they are all in play: people, content, process, and technology. And what I like to say is that we ought to spend three dollars uh, in people, process, and content for every dollar we spend in technology. If we tether knowledge management and the application of process, content, people, and technology to well-identified business issues, that is where uh, knowledge management can save the world, by uh, helping people connect with other people and, and create the basis for the synergy that human brains can uh, achieve instantaneously when put in direct contact with each other, mm. and connect people with content in whatever way works. Uh, I tend to agree with Jean-Claude was, uh, you know, putting stuffing, uh, stuffing PowerPoints in a repository and, and hoping that a search engine will find them is very passé as a paradigm. Mm. We have better paradigms. But there isn't one way of connecting people and content. We need to find what is the best one for each, uh, uh, for each business scenario. Uh, a mm. business scenario of connecting people who live in uh, clean and cool offices with uh, a, a wealth of electronics, uh, connecting this kind of people to content is different from connecting field doctors who act uh, in isolated uh, parts of the world where technology is not so uh, frequently uh, and easily accessible with the content that they need to uh, work on epidemics, well, that's a different business case that requires different uh, connection between people and content. So my, my answer, my long answer can be summarized in, in, a short, uh, in, in a short slogan, don't let knowledge run amok, tether it to the reality of the business issue that you're trying to solve. And um, 
Jean Claude, do you do you see it similarly? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I always, uh, when people ask me advice, I said uh, one thing that KM people should not do is talk KM to to their users. Um, they should talk about their business problem and 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 help them to solve the problem. Uh, Giovanni used the word chirurgically. I, I say yes. I think there are a couple of things that needs to happen. Number one is that we need more education at all level. And I think uh, we need education at uh, school, primary school, uh, colleges, and management school. I mean, there's so very few knowledge management courses available. Uh, I mean, I've been fortunate to have been invited to uh, to teach a class at Columbia University who has a, a master's in science in uh, information and knowledge strategy. So for episode 12, the idea here was to really get into the subject of measuring a digital workplace. It doesn't get any tougher than that, does it? And the two people who came on the show for episode 12 were two individuals who work for the organization where I'm the CEO, Digital Workplace Group, Andrew Marr, who's a lead benchmarking evaluator at the Digital Workplace Group, and Chris Tubb, who's an intranet and digital workplace consultant for DWG. Hope you enjoy it. Andrew, I mean, one of the questions that that often comes up when you're measuring whether it's um, intranets, collaboration, wider digital workplaces, is is what's the difference between measurement and, and benchmarking? So just to kind of help me, can you explain how the, the difference? Yeah, so I would say that, um, you know, benchmarking is using a predefined framework of uh, things that you're looking at, whether it's how, uh, you know, strategies developed in the organization, um, whether it's how communications happen inside the organization, but it's a, it's a preset list and, and framework of um, areas of practice and, and, and processes that you're looking at and you're assigning those a score. And then you're also giving some comparison with a, 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 you know, a group of other companies so that you get a, a, an idea of your relative performance against them. Um, whereas measurement, I would say, is, you know, just more about looking at the uh, the analytics. So, uh, you know, using a tool such as Adobe Analytics or Google Analytics, um, other analytics packages are available, um, but just to measure things that are peculiar to your organization. So you would set up your own framework of what it is that you're interested in, what it is that you want to keep an eye on, and, and the actions that you're going to take as a result of that as well. Mm. And, and what would you say that measurement, whether it's uh, across any of these and aspects of the digital world of work, what does it bring to organizations? If you like, kind of what's the value that organizations that you have measured and benchmarked have derived from, from what, from what they get? Well, I think when measurement, and, I'm, and I am talking about specifically measurement in terms of analytics and, and that kind of thing, uh, I think when measurement is done well, alongside other activities like user-centered design, it can really help organizations um, identify where to focus their, you know, usually limited resources to, to provide the most benefit to their employees. Um, you know, perhaps to give a, a couple of examples, um, you know, if organizations measure usage of their process 
forms, their workflows, just picking up on what Chris was talking about earlier, they can identify some problem areas through things like abandoned forms or stuck workflows, and then have their user experience and business analysis teams look at those processes and, and see if they can work out where the problem might be. If you're looking at content, you know, if a certain news story or piece of content is attracting a lot of readership, engagement, that kind of thing, what is it about that story that's engaging employees and, and can that be used, can those insights be used to improve other content? And Andrew, I mean, you, you like Chris in, in a previous incarnation of, of managed uh, int- uh, intranets inside organizations. Um, I mean, what, what, what do you feel has been, why have organizations struggled to put these metrics around it? And, and if you like, what do you think this sort of external perspective that, that in your work you bring to measuring intranets and digital workplaces adds? I mean, I think that there's a challenge of being able to clearly see the value that good measurement brings to the organization. So if you're on the internet, you're, you know, you have a, a, an e-commerce, uh, you know, website, whatever have you, there is clearly benefit in measuring what people are doing and, you know, where they go and if they're abandoning their shopping cart and all of that kind of thing, because you can turn it into hard currency that's been lost or, or, or suspected that you're that you're losing uh, it's, it can be sometimes more difficult um, to see that on uh, the internet and so therefore you know it's perhaps a little less incentive to look at those kinds of numbers in detail and and you know generally teams inside the organizations have fairly limited resources as we've uh, as we've discussed earlier so um, I think there's first of all there's that and then I think there's just about how to you know gain those insights into what's happening um, in the organization and, and putting effort into analyzing and, and understanding what that measurement data is telling you. So I think it's you know, a bit like Chris was saying, it's about having that link with the strategy, what it is that you're trying to get from the uh, the, the, the content, the, the, the functionality. It, it's no good just looking at homepage views and, and, and thinking that everything's well with the world because your employees are going there a few times a day. There, there kind of needs to be an ongoing process of, of digging into the data and, and understanding what it's telling you, uh, discussing it with relevant colleagues from around the organization and, and working out what to do with those insights that, that you've gained. So, you know, what are the objectives? Are people able to find what they're looking for? Um, are the user journeys effective? Are, are people able to complete tasks? Is the content working for an employee? So is it, you know, is it explaining those issues? Is it answering questions, helping them understand uh, what they have to do and, and that kind of thing? I mean, one of the things I'm kind of just sort of wondering about is, you know, as as the world of digital workplaces and workplaces generally become you know to quote the buzzwords more smarter more intelligent augmented reality ai should the way we measure this um how does it need to evolve in this more intelligent workplace world chris one hopes we measure less um i don't think that would be the case but you know you, you you can cross your fingers one of the reasons that we spend a lot of time doing measurement is to kind of model a sense of complexity that we can't as humans witness. You know, you've got a system, let's say 100,000 people use it and they use it in lots of different ways. That's that's a whole more com- load more complexity than, than we can kind of witness and respond to. 
So one might cross our fingers and go, you know, if if we have smarter systems that can kind of self-modify and do things that we would normally have needed to tell them to do, that's one of those uh, areas that it could go in. I'd almost, though, go the other way. Um, And uh, if you've looked at, um, it used to be called Delve Analytics. I think it's called My Dashboard now, uh, which is in Office 365. Underneath the whole of the Office suite now uh, is this thing called the Office Graph, which is, if you like, a way of visualizing everything to do with you, you, your documents, your colleagues, um, your discussions, your meetings, your email. It's a way of really combining those together on on what's called a, a, a network graph. So it's a way of mathematically associating everything. So when you go into Delve, this is how it can go, oh, you know, here's a document that your uh, colleague wrote. Perhaps you'll find this useful. The My Dashboard stuff is particularly interesting because it's beginning to show your working life in a sort of a measurable fashion. So, you know, if we want, uh, so for example, you know, it should be able to tell you, well, you've had, you know, X hours of FaceTime with your manager this month. You know, mm. that, that's, that's kind of a, and it's just looking that up in the diary because it knows who your manager is. But it's yeah. a very, very interesting idea that if we want the, if we want the digital workplace to kind of understand us, mm. it can only do so in ways of um, numbers, uh, so the more that we make the digital workplace smarter, the more that everything needs to get kind of compressed into these numbers. And effectively, everything will become measurable. Mm. Um, you know, there would have been things that wouldn't have been measurable before, but now they have become measurable. Now, that that opens up a huge idea or a huge responsibility on digital workplace managers and practitioners' shoulders about what what is sensible, what is wise, and what is moral. You know, yeah. there's a whole load of stuff in there which might be uh, a bit questionable, but uh, it's a fascinating area. Thank you so much for listening to what we like to call the Digital Workplace Impact Sizzle Reel, highlights of season one. We have some fantastic content in season two, Uh, about to do a recording with an individual in charge of knowledge at NASA, going to be um, getting into the Lord's Cricket Ground. I know it's a confusing sport, cricket, but it's somebody who's in charge of technology for that whole area. And we've already had out um, some content getting behind the scenes at Vodafone, who won a Digital Workplace of the Year award and spent some terrific time at the Williams Formula One racing team. So, fantastic content coming up and already there. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, etc. And keep up to date with what we are doing at digitalworkplacegroup.com. Thank you for listening. And without you guys, we don't have a show. So, thank you. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group. 
a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. If you'd like more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com and thank you for listening.